Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Grid. I have a very special guest today, somebody who I've been friends with for a very long time from back in the day of middle school chess tournaments. Live in my Philly studio, it's Ben Johnson of The Perpetual Podcast. That's a podcast, actually, that's in its third year, and it interviews top chess personalities, the top players in the world. Ben is also a national master, many-time member of the National Championship Chess Team Masterman, and a practicing chess coach. But what some people have forgotten about Ben is that he was also a very successful professional poker player for seven years. And thus, he comes on the grid to discuss a hand from 2006 at the third season of the European Poker Tour in Baden, Austria. It was a 5,000 euro event with over 300 players. And he brings us a hand when he was all the way to heads up. Ben, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Jen. I'm a big fan of the grid, and I'm excited to talk about this hand that I played terribly 13 years ago. Well, you're you're not the first person to talk about a terrible hand. In fact, <laughs> Lex Veldhaus, who was my very first guest, also talked about. A- oh yeah, I heard. I've heard all the interviews. I heard the one with Lex. I played with him many moons ago. Yeah, and it was nice to hear humility from someone who's done so well for himself. And I think that is actually a trend. Um, it doesn't always match, but I think the the better the player, the more likely they were to give me a hand that they played terribly. Oh, well, so in that case, I'm a great player because I played this hand pretty badly. So let's hear it. Set it up for us. Where were you in terms of your poker career? How long had you been playing? And how did you end up in this 5K Euro event in Austria? Okay, so this is 2006. I was a full-time poker pro from 2004 to 2011. Of course, your brother Greg is one of my oldest friends and best friends, and he's been on your show. Uh, He and a couple other chess players and I all sort of came up together and became poker pros together, kind of pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. But by by this time, I was already a pretty successful professional. I played a lot of tournaments. I came in 30th in the main event or around 30th one year before I had any clue what I was doing. Gradually got better. I was I played a lot of uh, shout out to some of your other guests. Um. I'm a dinosaur, so I played a lot of uh, mid to high stakes limit hold'em online. Did pretty well with that. Had some good tournament results. And basically, in terms of MTTs, they weren't my primary focus, but I would try to play about five a year, especially if I could satellite online. Otherwise, I would just play the main event. And I like to go to LA, so I'd play the LA Poker Classic. But I liked living in New York, and I wasn't like a full-time tournament person. But I won an EPT bottom seat um, on PokerStars, and I managed to hoodwink our mutual friend Yaakov Hirsch into coming with me to Austria. So we went and we played the tournament and lo and behold, I had the best result of my life. So, and it was a tough tournament. There were a lot of strong players, a lot of sort of well-known players like uh, Elki, Bertrand Gaspoyer and Andy Black and this Italian kid, Dario Miniari, who went to the final table. A lot of tough players. It was a tough field that I went through and then I got to heads up and it was against not the toughest player in the field, nice guy, but not a professional. And I think um, I don't want to bury the lead, but I think I might have relaxed a little too much. With that rambling intro out of the way, the actual hand was I had pocket sevens in the small blind. At this point, you've already locked up quite a big score for yourself, right? Yeah. So I'm getting at least, I think I ended up, spoiler alert, I came in second. So I ended up getting uh, 320,000 or something like that wire transfer in my bank account a few days later. So that was pretty sweet. Yeah. And first was about double that. So that that was the situation. In terms of chip count, um, he had about 1.9 million and I had about 1.3 million. Uh, we didn't have a ton of play. The blinds were about uh, 15,000, 30,000 with a 3,000 ante. So that was the, the situation. And it was very early in the heads up match, uh, this hand. 
And you were a little over 40 bigs deep. You actually had just played an interesting hand right before this hand. Yeah. So you got two pairs in a row. You had tens the previous hand. And um, you actually made a big overbet on the turn. So a sophisticated play. You were well ahead of your time. <laughs> well, I might have been ahead in some respects. But overall, when I, when I watched the final table, um, I'm pretty proud of how I played the rest of the tournament. But heads up, I didn't play well at all. I heard your interview with Matt Matros where he was talking about... Um, playing Brian Hastings in the the NBC Heads Up Championship. And he was talking about how important it is because um, to work on your heads up game. And that definitely resonated with me. I mean, I had one other second place finish in like a preliminary tournament at the LA Poker Classic. I was prior to that. But other than that, I mean, I had some handful of six figure scores, but only a couple final tables. And because cash games were more of my emphasis, I didn't really put in the work that I should have into heads up. And thus, I am not proud of how I played this hand. Okay, so you're, you got sevens, you're in the small blind, you're a little over 40 bigs deep. And you're, you mentioned earlier that you felt you relaxed a little bit because you're in this great situation and you're not against one of the top professionals. You know, I would call him a solid casual player. Basically, my overall impression of him was he's going to play fairly straightforward. He had amassed the chip lead. He flopped the nuts three times at the final table. So it was just one of those things where he he had some favorable situations. And my basic impression was I can probe him a little bit and try to take chips from him. So that was sort of my game plan, but I didn't really have time to step back and plot it on a more granular level. So I, in the hand you mentioned prior, I had pocket tens and I just limped because I was just trying to see flops. And same thing with the pocket sevens. I limp and then he raises. And already it's like I didn't have the hand mapped out in my head. And now I'm thinking, well, this was my thinking at the time. So again, blinds are 15,000, 30,000. I complete to 30,000. He makes it a little over, I think he made it 130 straight. And now I felt like my hand would be too underwrapped if I just call uh, with sevens. And shoving just seems egregious, especially because if I ever get called, I'm in terrible shape. And I think I have a skill edge over this guy. So at this point, I re-raised. I'll save the editorializing for later. But basically, I didn't expect a call in that spot for from him. Um, I, he was going to be out of position. And I didn't feel like he was going to be trying to see a ton of flops out of position. So I felt like he would either shove or fold. And given the way he played, I was comfortable making a tight fold if he shoved. But of course, he calls. So onto the flop we go. So a branch of the tree you hadn't anticipated. You were expecting this hand to somehow end preflop. Yeah, I was expecting it to end preflop. And of course, there's a lot I would change. But anyway, let, let's talk about the hand and then, and then uh, live through my regrets. So we go to the flop and the flop is Jack five, six rainbow. He now checks to me. And I believe I had about 900,000 behind. And of course, he covers reasonably comfortably. Again, I mean, it's a pretty good flop for my hand, but I'm already not feeling great about the situation. I'm thinking, what kind of hand is he going to um, raise my limp and then call with? And it's a, a fairly strong range. Basically, king-queen possibly, pocket pairs in my neighborhood, ace-jack, stuff like that. It's not a great spot, but I do feel like I can get the information I need. So I I bet about a third of pot. I think I bet about uh, 350-ish. And he pretty quickly shoved. So this is just gross. I've put like 60% of my chips in. And now I don't think I'm ahead in the hand. But on the other hand, pocket sevens on a jack five, six rainbow flop. It's in the upper echelon of flops I could hope for in that situation. So there I was. And you thought for quite a bit and you ended up making the fold. Yeah, I tank folded. I mean, my, my overarching read on, on this player was just he's not going to run a big bluff. In this situation, I mean, the only really combo you could strain to give him that that I'm beating is he could have like 7-8 suited, something like that, and be pushing an open-ended straight draw. These days, we would say I'm blocking 7-8 suited. Those days, blocking was like maybe a thing in Pot Limit Omaha, but not not in 2006 in No Limit Hold'em. That thought wouldn't have crossed my mind. Um, So I just felt like, you know, I'm beat here basically always. So the word blocker didn't exist in that way in No Limit Hold'em parlance. So you're saying it didn't occur to you that the fact that you had sevens made it less likely for him to have seven, eight. Yeah, I mean, I would love to sit here and tell you that it did, but it, it really, it really didn't. So 
Yeah. That's interesting because it kind of shows the importance of language and creating ideas. Because obviously you were a very high-ranked poker player. And because of your chess background, took a very studious approach to it. But even you hadn't even thought of that concept, right? Yeah, I, I hadn't thought of the concept. I mean, of course, I thought specifically about 7-8 in that situation. But it was more, you know, combining the probability of, first, I didn't think he would raise my limp. Then even if he does raise my limp, I didn't think he would call. And even if he did all that, my read on him was, he's not necessarily just going to check shove. Like, he might just check call with an open-ended straight draw. So put all those things together. And the fact that I'm blocking the 7-8 is like, if I had, if it had even occurred to me, it would still be like fourth on the list of reasons to discount 7-8 as a possibility. And I'm losing to all of his value hands. And I didn't think he was ever straight up bluffing. When you're in these high intense situations, it's like the list of things that kind of come to you first, priority wise. And that just like was not there. And so you, you folded and tell me a little bit about how you felt after the hand and reflecting on it, what you think you should have done better, even in that time, obviously not kind of like right. time traveling. 13 years later. Yeah. Well, it's funny you should mention because in, I rewatched the final table for the first time in over a decade preparing for this interview. And I had been on camera here and there in poker, but I hadn't been like properly mic'd up on a final table. And our, our friend Yaakov was there and he was like functioning as my coach and cheerleader, of course. Uh, and he's he's pretty, um, pretty savvy with situations like this. Like he's good at reading people. He's good at giving advice. There's a moment where I go over to him and I'm like, oh, I just butchered this hand. You know, I bloated the pot, put 60% of my chips in and then folded. So clearly I was not totally over it. And in fact, Jen... I punted off the rest of my stack later with uh, with King three off. So if you ever need King three off, we could lament me misplaying the biggest tournament of my life even more. So that's where my headspace was after that hand. Yeah, I saw that. I actually watched to the end. There was it was very interesting, kind of like historical time capsule into poker and poker commentary as Lee Jones and James Hardigan, who are still both very active on the poker tour, with James still the voice of. European poker tour and how professional and polished he was even back then. Yeah, they did a good job. That was one thing the production generally and rewatching it, I thought was pretty good. Especially James, because he's not really dealing with the strategy portion. It was kind of funny that you look back 14 years later and it seems like actually quite similar from his end. Right. You mentioned that after that, you punted it off with uh, the King three off. And yeah. yeah, and it's like, I again, I like limp shoved. It's like, what what the hell was I doing? You know? It's painful for me to watch. Just generally, I was trying to see flops. And when, when the situation would arise where it was getting more expensive to see flops, I just didn't adjust properly. I should have just stuck with the plan of a need to see flops. If you limp call, and you know, these are the days of exploitive poker, you know, to the maximum. So if I had limp called with pocket sevens, it's way better than limp re-raising. I mean, of course, I could have just raised in that hand. And later, I mean, even when I was short, by the time I limp shoved the king three hand, I was probably down to about 20 big blinds. So, okay, there's not a lot of wiggle room, but I still felt like I could probe the guy. But in watching it, it just felt kind of like I, I ran out of gas. I didn't explicitly feel pressure. I didn't, it wasn't a conscious thought that I was feeling pressure for the final table, but I just played so much worse heads up than I did the rest of the tournament. So that's interesting. And I think the sevens hand, if you look back on it, um, do you feel like, what was it that you think tilted you about that hand? Was there a particular street? that you think like was haunting you or was it just this kind of like generalized sense that somehow you butchered it? Yeah, definitely the latter. Because actually, as I sit now and Jen, I'm not a solver person. I have, you know, I'm like 90% out of the poker world at this point. So I don't know what a solver would say uh, in terms of how to play it. But when I started rewatching it the other day and thinking through this hand, it wasn't obvious to me. Like it wasn't 100% obvious, like what I should have done, you know? So it was more just a general feeling of like the strategy of putting 60% of your chips in and folding uh, probably wasn't optimal. I mean, I, I see what you're saying, like making the exploitive plays in that hand certainly made a lot of sense to you even many years later. It did seem to me that, um, you know, your bet on the flop is a little big if your plan is to sometimes fold. Uh, yeah. Because it was like it was closer to 50%, I think, than 30%. I mean, I left a lot of my babies in the pot for sure. <laughs> Disappointing. That made it difficult from, from that point forward. And so it's interesting as like a chess player, um, the heads up would normally be like the best part of your game, right? Yeah. Like you would think that like as a natural yeah. 
heads up player. I've won online tournaments and stuff. And, uh, you know, playing mid and high stakes limit hold'em, I, I played a lot of shorthanded. So I regret never working on my heads up no limit game. But I had a sense for sort of the, uh, the dancing that goes on in heads up poker generally. I mean, the, the sort of feeling each other out and probing people and stuff like that. So that makes me even more disappointed with how I played. Wow, so many years later, still a little bit disappointed. How do you Well, think- you're the one that dredged it up, Jen. I was just living my life with my wife and kids, you know? <laughs> so- but would your uh, life have changed if you had won this um, heads up match? Uh, it's pretty unlikely. I had a I had a healthy bankroll then. More money would have been nice. The only thing I can think of is I probably would have been a little bit more aggressive about playing tournaments then, uh, especially EPTs. Uh, if I had won that, tournaments were never my my sole emphasis. And I probably only, and not because of bankroll reasons, but I probably only played about 10 to 15 more big buy-in events in my poker career after that. And I, and I had some results too. I just got tired of traveling and didn't, you know, the juice didn't seem worth the squeeze to me. But I suspect if I had had even more success, that might have been different. I had a previous guest on my show, Peter Jedden, who says that a lot of really good, talented poker players and games players are really hard on themselves when they make a mistake. And they're not nice enough to themselves when they make like an above the rim play. As a chess player, we I think we're very aware of that as well, because it's so easy to blunder. And it's like kind of hard to go above the rim in a certain sense. It feels obvious after the fact. Um, What's your perspective on that? And do you feel like maybe when you look back, you're guilty of that, that same psychological thing? Um, Maybe. I mean, overall, I, when I got back to Brooklyn and sort of assessed, I mean, you know, I'm, I was happy with second place, you know, it's a lot of money. It's hard to, it's hard to fixate too much on misplaying the hand. So certainly I regretted it, but it didn't animate me. It's not something I spent a lot of time ruminating about in subsequent months and years. So it was more like immediately after it tilted you, but afterwards you were forgiving and like excited to take home the the bounty. Exactly. You know, I was going to lose a decent amount of chips that hand. It just the setup in heads up poker, if you get pocket sevens and the other person gets ace jack, if you go to a flop and the flops jack five six, like you're going to lose some chips. So as you say, I could have lost maybe 20% fewer, 25% fewer, but you know, I was an online grinder. I'm just firing up the computer and playing mostly limit hold'em and winning and losing, you know, winning or losing thousands of dollars a day, you know, sometimes five figures. So it bothered me, but I didn't think about it too much. I felt like when I saw you play, you looked like you were very focused and almost like a little angry, like, but in a good way that you were like aggressive. Like generally? Like, or? like just more like an, an aggressive, like a, you want to, you want to take this down. You want to beat the other guy. Yeah. Is that kind of similar to how you played chess or did you feel like in poker, the aggression came out even more? I don't think that was that representative of my poker overall, I have to say. In chess, I think I'm my best strength. I have, I'm not playing a lot of, I'm not playing much competitive chess at this point, but I always felt like I punched a little above my weight based on sort of a competitive spirit, not giving up. And maybe some of the psychological aspects of chess, I felt like were better than just sort of like raw tactics and knowledge. In poker, I also think that was the case for me. Being kind of like focused and like, you know, ready to to think at any moment. Yeah, and competitive for, for sure. I mean, I wasn't angry, but I definitely, I liked, liked winning, <laughs> preferred winning to losing for sure. It's interesting that you say that because I feel like that's true of a lot of um, young players that they make up their lack of knowledge and fighting spirit, energy at the board, sits flesh as we called it. Now that you're the host of the Perpetual Podcast and you even have this bonus shows on great books in chess, you're accumulating so much more knowledge. Are you feeling like a reversal at all? Like that you know a lot about chess and you're not always able to execute it? Well, first of all, Jen, that was a masterful plug. Thank you. Um, And second of all, yeah, I feel a lot different, but I think mainly it's because I'm a parent. It just changes your perspective about everything. So I just don't have that killer instinct. I, I wish I could play competitive chess. I love, I mean, I could, of course. I love competitive chess, but I have a wife and kids and my wife works full time and I have professional responsibilities. 
So I don't get to play as much chess and even poker now that I live in New Jersey. Once in a while, I'll play some Pot Limit Omaha, which these days is my preferred game on uh, Poker Stars New Jersey, or sometimes I go to parks. I'm still a winning player, but definitely that fifth gear, I feel like, is what is harder for me to find now that I'm a parent and a poker hobbyist rather than professional. You mean it's just hard to like care enough to like build up this killer instinct? Yeah, exactly. And in those marginal spots where you're like, his range is capped, her range is capped, I should probably like, you know, uh, pull the trigger here. When I'm not in it every day, and I'm not like, and it's basically blowing off steam for, for me, it's harder to do the more difficult thing, do the uncomfortable thing. And what about the challenge of being a parent? Because a lot of people who grew up during the poker boom are now becoming parents or thinking of it or have small children. The distance you have for money, you know, you're not playing these big tournaments where there you could like, well, 500 extra buy in. But if you were, do you think that would be more difficult? Yeah, the, the money makes a difference, too. As I said, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky that and I have so much respect, Jen, for people like Trevor, who are parents grinding cash games, supporting a family. That just seems really hard to me, even even for the super successful people. It does seem hard. I mean, I'm I'm lucky in that, you know, any money I make from poker is basically going to be supplementary income. But I still do think about it a little bit more. But it's hard for me to deconstruct to what extent it's based on being a parent versus just based on not being a professional, because it used to be I was just in it all the time. So I had the swings all the time, whereas now it's just when you're playing once a week, you have a lot more perspective on what the $1,000 bluff could buy, as opposed to when your every hand is like that, you know? Right, not having it really as much of a segregated bankroll. Yeah, exactly. That makes sense. And going back to the hand... No, please don't. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, what, was, what was the atmosphere like at an EPT back in 2006? I know that there were probably a lot more... A lot more partying than there is today because a lot of people are pretty serious about the poker and there's so many events. Yeah. Now, if you go to an APT, you can literally play all day, every day. I mean, there seemed to be a decent amount of partying. Definitely a lot of young European online pros who are good players. I'm I'm definitely uh, proud of getting through that field. I had good results in some some bigger fields and I felt like that one was, the EPT Baden one was amongst the toughest competition, even though in terms of like name recognition, it wasn't the highest. One thing I will say is I found the people there to be friendlier than I generally did on the American circuit. I had um, my small circle of friends in the American circuit and I, you know, I, I knew some limit hold'em grinders from, from online, but I made some friends on that trip. We didn't stay friends, but people were very friendly and definitely willing to have a drink or two, you could say. It's interesting that you say that because I find the poker community to be pretty friendly today, even though people talk about the glory days and how much more fun it was and how much more friendly and partying it was. I actually think for somebody like you today might be even like more comfortable for you because everybody loves the nerds. Right. They're so much more popular. Okay. Glad to hear it. And yeah, one thing I should mention, and this is, I think, useful advice for any young pros listening is I'm an introvert by by nature. Some have have called me a nerd, uh, (laughs) maybe even in the last one minute. And I just generally didn't network that much. Like I, you know, I traveled to a lot of tournaments, LA, Vegas. I even had a place in Vegas for a while. And, but I had my little circle of friends and I wasn't really trying to make friends. And that I think when I ended up quitting poker, a lot of it was just, I didn't feel like I had enough of a network to sort of push through poker getting a little bit harder. That's some advice that when I started my chess podcast, as I got back into the chess world years later, I was able to sort of, learn to push through my insecurity and just do what you needed to do. And, you know, it's not necessarily a selfish motive. It makes your life, you know, obviously having friends enriches one's life and having connections enriches one's life generally. But I think it might have made a difference in my poker career if I had been a little more networked with the other traveling pros. Yeah, because people drop out of poker all the time. I think that's what people don't realize that I also agree with you in retrospect is so clear. So many people drop out of poker or stop playing live poker, at least, that you might think that you have some friends, but, you know, people will will drop out at alarming rates. So, like, you know, widening your network is always very valuable. Yeah, and I would have played a lot more live MTTs, but I couldn't get my friends to go. And it just wasn't that fun uh, to go on my own because I didn't know that many people. And I know I wasn't the only uh, poker pro who had this situation. Obviously, your brother and my friend Greg, 
He's an introvert by nature too, but was very active posting on 2 plus 2. And because of that, knows a lot of these OG legends, you know, uh, David Benefield and Phil Galfond and all those people. Whereas I wasn't really an active poster. Um, so even though Greg never left his house, he was reasonably networked. But for, for me, it, yeah, I just, you know, I met some people, of course, in, in the course of playing all those tournaments, but it wasn't, uh, we weren't really going out for drinks and stuff like that. But even the posting on 2 plus 2 or these days, posting on Twitter, making podcasts, all that is a form of extroversion as well, right? Like you, you have to push past your insecurities and like press send. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it is. And that's another thing where uh, having kids just totally flipped my perspective. I used to have sort of fear of public speaking. And then you have kids and you just feel like none of that shit matters. You know, you just do what you need to do, um, basically. So what do you mean? Like the fear just it didn't seem as significant because there's so many bigger things in life? Yeah, it was just gone. It's like I, you kind of I don't really care what people think of me anymore. You know, when you have a family, you want your family to love you and appreciate you and everything beyond that. It just you, you kind of, at least for me, focus on what needs to be done. Right. That's fascinating. And, you know, nowadays, of course, I'm sure you're aware in poker, there's this content boom as a lot of sponsored players, for sure, always have multiple streams of their content production. But even players who aren't sponsored just to kind of have fun and network often create a podcast, a Twitch channel, certainly a Twitter and Instagram persona. You've been very successful in creating the Perpetual Podcast and kind of carving out this incredible niche. You, at the time of recording, you have over 150 episodes. Can you give some advice to aspiring content creators? Um, it's funny you should mention because I mean, I do. I'm happy with the success I've had. I have I have my li little tiny corner of the universe. And it's amazing to get to talk to these brilliant chess players. And it's definitely uh, my favorite aspect of my professional work. But I just interviewed this guy, Agad Matur. He has the biggest chess YouTube channel in the world. And, you know, he gave the sort of classic, you know, received advice, which is if, if you, you have some idea in your head, if you want to create content, you just have to do it and push through. And the, the, for me, what it was when I started this podcast, you know, of course, James Altucher has been on Perpetual Chess. He's been on your show. We both read his books. We're both fans of his. You know, he talks about being an idea generation machine. That's not me. As I retired from poker and didn't play ever, I still liked poker podcasts. I've Listen to Thinking Poker over the years. I've, I've always enjoyed watching Joe Ingram. I do enjoy the great game of Pot Lemon Omaha, and it's generally entertaining. Basically, what I was going to say about creating the podcast is it was like an idea that wouldn't go away. So specifically, if you have an idea that will not go away, you need to pursue that. That's what my experience was. You keep thinking about doing something. Um, if it's just a passing idea, you could do it, you could not do it. But if it's something that's recurring, that's like your subconscious mind or even your conscious mind trying to send you a message. And so how long was this idea lingering um, before you pulled the trigger? It was at least a year. I mean, I had a, a notes in my notes app on my phone. I would brainstorm names and brainstorm uh, possible guests. And I was, again, I'm an introvert. I was working. I was, you know, uh, my oldest son was a baby. So I wasn't overflowing with free time. So honestly, if someone else had started a chess podcast, I would have just forgot about it. But it just didn't happen. And eventually I found the person who produces my podcast. So there were no more technical obstacles. And then I just decided, okay, I have to try this. And when did you come up with the name? And how did you decide, like, this is the one? I guess it was just brainstorming at some point, you know, some point driving around or something. And luckily, um, unlike, um, shout out to Lucky Chewy, I do not have a photographic memory, but I've learned to write things down. Even before I knew I was going to do the podcast, I knew if I'm going to do it, this is what it's going to be called. For those um, who are listening to this who don't play chess, but I love the title of Ben's podcast, Perpetual Podcast, because perpetual check is a term in chess that refers to what I consider an endless game. You check the king, and then it goes back to the, the square before, and you keep checking it back and forth. You don't have a better way to play. Perhaps you're, you're down material on the other side of the board. It's an agreed draw but in a way it's an endless game that never ends which is of course what your your fans and listeners hope your podcast will be right and not to get too like uh marketing speak on you guys but of course chess has been around for 1500 years i mean it is the perpetual game that's one thing i love about it is that it you know it's played in every country and it's it just its longevity is amazing so absolutely and you know going back to james altucher in the lists i feel like for me, I can kind of understand what he's saying because I do like to like write lists and write down just like a bunch of terrible ideas, sometimes email my friends them. But you're right, ones that kind of continue to 
pop up in the same lists or that you just have more of like a zinger feeling towards them like I have to do this like when I thought of the idea for like the book chess bitch or um, even the idea for this podcast there was just like a more of a compulsion feeling yeah and I should be clear I I think James is absolutely right I just don't do it you know I, I think it's amazing to write down a list of ideas every day as he suggests but I just haven't done it. And yeah, I had a similar feeling and I hadn't had this feeling since I started the podcast. But when I expanded, as you mentioned, to start doing recaps of chess books, I finally had that feeling again, like, okay, this is something where, you know, forget your schedule. You just find you need to find a way to make it work. Yeah. What do you think the number one thing that the poker world could do even better from learning from the chess world? I'm like a tanker by nature, I have to confess, in poker. Um, I just, you know, I'm analytical. I played classical chess. So, you know, you would have six hour games. It wouldn't be that unusual. So my instinct is to think a long time, but it's just absurd how long people think. And I do think that uh, clocks need to be mandatory and people just need to learn to deal with it. Similar to the debate about chess that, of course, your brother is uh, advancing the movement of um, faster chess games being uh, better for the viewing population and still pretty high quality games. Right. And that can kind of create like a bigger differential between the best players and those in the next tier. Like when you have somebody like Dan DeVoris or Jay Kuhn, and you think like, well, yeah, you could play like them um, in one hand, especially if you had like five times as much time as as 30 seconds, right? Yeah. But having to have that all like at your fingertips, that does seem like more analogous to like watching a chess player and calculating and being like, wow, that's really hard. Yeah, it's true. It it would be hard. And and some another interesting parallel I read, you know, I still consume poker content as well as tons of chess content. I'm reading a former world champion Viswanathan Zanon book, Mind Master. And he's talking about, of course, um, the neural networks, which are kind of taking over the chess world on my podcast just in the past two months interviewed like three opening book authors who are kind of at the vanguard using these like 35 3600 rated computers to uh discover new things in the opening and it seems like there's just an explosion um obviously i'm not breaking ground by saying chess computers are good at chess but it seems like the trend is accelerating and uh i was listening to olivia bousquet recently started a podcast so i checked it out and i really enjoyed it and i heard him mention that he felt like the gap between the elite players in poker and the sort of um mid-stakes grinders etc was growing because of solvers so i i think that's another parallel between chess and poker and i'm interested to see what what happens with both of them in terms of what the top people do and how that information uh gets filtered down to mortals like me yeah, Two Lives with Olivia, indeed, a, a great new podcast um, as well. Um, yeah, I think that's really interesting. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons, like, I wasn't totally joking about the nerd thing. I think that all poker players are now kind of fascinated by solvers and, like, chess players because we've been working with, like, a, this kind of similar thing to a solver for so many years, right? Yeah. It, it makes us um, more fascinating to poker players than it used to be, I think. I see so many poker players really taking up chess seriously now. I've I, noticed that too, yeah. Before, I think people were like kind of interested, like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Maybe I'll play a game. Whereas now I think people are like, really, a, a lot of people are really trying to study it. Yeah, I've noticed that as well. It's nice to see the worlds kind of connect because I do think that chess players and poker players are, are kindred spirits. And I get what you're saying about poker players um, wanting to use solvers. Like I'm, there's a lot I don't miss about being a professional poker player, but I could totally get down with the idea of like just hunkering down with a solver and just like playing with it. It's nowhere near my reality right now, but back in the day it was poker tracker and hold'em manager. I know those things still exist, but that was sort of the, the peak of the analytics back then. And now it's um, so much more advanced and I would love to get lost in that world in, in, you know, a parallel life. That's one aspect I really love of poker right now, the solvers. It's kind of fun to work with them, but they're so different than chess computers because I think it's easier, even easier in poker than in chess to misinterpret the information and um, actually like play worse and create and carve bad strategies because of using solvers. Maybe that's because they're a little newer. So the thing about like a solver is... You have to put in all the bet sizes. Yeah, the inputs. Yeah, so many yeah. more inputs. Yeah. So yeah. if you mess that up, yeah. you, know, you can just get trash results. I definitely agree. And in, in chess, I mean, it's amazing just to download Lila Zero and have a 3500 at your fingertips. I mean, that is just, you know, when I add Peter Svidler on Perpetual Chess, he grew up in uh, St. Petersburg, Russia. And he used he told the story of um, circling on his calendar when the new informant uh, book would come out, which was like, 
you know, a few times a year and like trudging across St. Petersburg, you know, taking the metro to where he could get the informant. And then it was just like gold. It was just like this world opens up to you. And now it's just like everything is at the tip of a finger. You can get all the games by the top players in, in the world the next day. And they're not even the peak of the information that's available because of the computers. It's amazing. We've talked a lot about how poker players are seeming to get even more interested in chess from, you know, people we've mentioned already, like Nick Schulman and Olivier to people who are just messaging me all the time for basic tips. It's really interesting how that's become such a big trend. There's Bill Perkins who's running that tournament. That's awesome. Shout out to Bill for doing that. That's amazing. Yeah, charity chess tournament coming up in Houston with 300k at stake. So there's a lot of that going on. But what about the other way? Chess players used to be so drawn to poker for the quote unquote easy money. And hey, some of the time they were right. Now, is it just really difficult because chess players don't have a lot of money? You know, the thing that's different is I knew a lot of successful chess players uh, in, in the poker world. You could pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You didn't have to upright, uproot your life. Whereas now, it's like if you want to be a poker pro, well, first you have to decide if you're going to play online or live. Whereas before, I mean, anyone could play online, anyone could get the reps, and you could build up the bankroll. And now it just seems so much harder. I mean, part of the reason I quit poker in 2011 was I loved living in New York, and I wasn't really willing to move to play. So when I was already burnt out, but when when Black Friday hit, it was just a no-brainer to me. I'm not moving to play this game that's lately driving me crazy. To move to a different place, to go to a casino every day, and to get your reps like so slowly, that's a big commitment. I mean, my experience playing live, especially in the past year, I don't play that often, but there's still plenty of money to be made for, you know, analytically minded individuals, but there's a cost, you know, there's, there's a cost in terms of your lifestyle that I think it's a higher bar in terms of the sacrifice required. And getting back to all the content creation in poker, I do think that's Part of the reason everyone has a side hustle in poker now. Yeah, and I also think it depends on what you want. Like what my advice would be to chess players who want to kind of get into poker or even people who are analytical and play some other game or in math is that you should kind of start it as like a profitable hobby. That should be your first call. Yeah, for sure. Which was true back in the day too. It's just back in the day, it would become a profitable hobby by accident. Whereas now it's like, you know, years of work. So yeah, but it's excellent advice. Unfortunately, you have to take it slow. And that can be hard because again, if you don't live where there's a casino and you aren't in a state, especially in the US I'm talking about, but I I mean, from what I hear about Europe, I mean, the online games are pretty tough. So I'm talking more about, uh, I think it's still viable live. Online, it's probably more of a case-by-case basis. And of course, in the US, you have the underground sites, but they have their own set of problems. It's harder to do it as a side hustle because you have to live somewhere where it's um, available. Well, at least PokerStars came to PA now where I live. So that's actually really nice as well. And that's why I've been having more guests in my live studio, even though it's not relevant to you. People are kind of coming through more often. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Like I said, these days I enjoy Pot Limit Omaha. And if I'm watching an NBA game, I love to to fire up a few tables on on the iPad. I'm very lucky that I live, live in a state where that's possible. But I don't know my experience comparing like where I am in life online and live. Um, if I were to ever pursue poker, it would it would have to be live, but it's it's not going to happen either way. That actually ties into my next question. If you were suddenly given one million dollars in a briefcase just to play poker, you had to play poker with it and try to build it. What would be your strategy? Well, that gets to the issue of uh, these private games, of course. I mean, I, I'm I'm guessing you know I have heard all the episodes of the Grid. I don't hear them coming up that often but i mean unfortunately that's the golden goose these days very often for where i am in life if i were to try to build a poker bankroll whether it was from a million or from where i was i would want to emphasize quality of game over quantity that would be like my number one thing as i told you i enjoy studying so i would love to study poker i mean again separate life it's not going to happen but i would love to study poker 10 hours a week and play one or two nights a week and that's it you know but anything that involves like hardcore grinding would just it started to eat away at my soul in 2011. Poker, again, I, I love it, but certainly I was I was ready to quit when I quit. And I think that would happen again if I went back to playing full time. Right, right. Of course, this hypothetical, you'd be forced to spend a million on poker. Yeah, you know, yeah. Not like... No, know, and just... I enjoy I enjoy playing. But yeah, for me, it would I would definitely want to skew towards higher stakes. And, you know, I'm, I, I enjoy the process of trying to get better, but I wouldn't want to try to compete with the elite in poker. They're just so amazing. You know, I, I still think 
game selection is, uh, you know, it can't be overemphasized no matter what your financial situation is. And that ties into this whole earlier discussion we had about networking, which is an underrated skill in poker and in chess, not only because it can help your chess game and your poker game, but also because maybe if you go into some other career, it can help you. Absolutely. I mean, I've seen high stakes players online say, um, I think it was, he's a high stakes PLO player. Oh, Ashby said it was one of these little memes on Twitter where it was like, you shred some sacred cow in your industry or something like that. Like you're supposed to subtweet. Or quote tweet something with like something that's perceived wisdom but isn't actually true. And he said something like the the connections you'll make from playing high stakes poker cash games will be more valuable to you than than the cash games themselves. Which I totally believe having some friends who move in those circles and, you know, still to this day and are playing with a lot of uh, successful people from outside the poker world. So this was a tweet which was supposed to be real advice? Or? It was real advice, but it was like against the perceived, it was supposed to be against the perceived wisdom. So he was saying it's more valuable to make friends with these successful people from outside of poker than it is to actually just win money from them. That's fascinating. And, you know, I think that is interesting because it also, the type of person who believes that and actually internalizes that respect is probably more likely to get invited to the games. Right, yeah. You don't want to be too cynical about it either. I feel like, I mean, again, I'm not in this world, but it seems to me like if you want to play these these high stakes games, it's like you need to be friendly and make it entertaining, but you don't want to be phony. So I, again, as an introvert, I would find that challenging. You know, I don't, I don't need to sit there and wear headphones, but I, you know, it's hard to change your personality. Did you actually take the Myers-Briggs test and did you find yourself like high on the introverts crowd? I, yeah, it's been a long time. I don't remember like what it was called, but I was definitely an introvert. Well, maybe now after all this work with the Perpetual Podcast, you'll have like shifted a little bit. Do you think like you your personality has actually changed or you've just kind of like met these challenges? Um, I would say I've met the challenges. Like if there's, you know, a party, I mean, you know, I'm turning 43 later this month, married, two little kids. So I don't go to a lot of parties. But if there was a party where there were going to be a lot of people I didn't know, um, the the apprehension that I used to feel like single in my 20s would, would still be there. So it's more about like professional responsibilities and public speaking and stuff like that. Is there still something like that would make you scared? Um, it's more just I wouldn't, it wouldn't seem like fun, you know? It's just if something doesn't suit your personality. I mean, that was the beauty of online poker back in the day is like, you're using your brain and you're making a living. I mean, it was just an incredible blessing as, as Greg, among others, have alluded to. And, you know, I asked you earlier whether winning this hand would have changed your life. But, you know, what about the flip side? Would you have been where you are now if it wasn't for poker? Like, how do you think it would have changed things? You know, that's a question I wrestled with a lot because if I didn't pick up poker, it's hard to say because I was enjoying teaching chess when poker came along. And I was think starting to think I might want to do it my whole life, but I was also young enough where I could go to graduate school or something like that. And whereas when Black Friday came in 2011, I had taken an interest in the financial markets and I wanted to try trading. But I also at that time was 34 and I could have gone to graduate school, but it felt like on the late side. So poker, it's possible poker took me away from sort of um, some sort of advanced degree, like an MBA or, you know, law school or something like that. But one never knows. The only thing that you didn't really succeed in in life is this day trading. Right? Yeah, yeah. I tried to trade for a living for five years. And it's funny because in poker, I was good at competing, but I also kind of knew my place in the ecosystem. I was pretty good, but I never considered myself elite. And when I played uh, online, especially, I game selected. So I was pretty successful in just not playing the toughest games. I wasn't, you know, again, I played limit hold'em, so I wasn't playing heads up with Matt Horlenko. Whenever I ended up in a game with him, he was just so much better than me, clearly. So I had that knowledge in the poker world, but then I decided to enter, you know, the toughest, most competitive field in the world, financial markets. And it was just, it came from a place of love. I read every book I got, could get my hands on. I was building spreadsheets. I was studying. That's when I took up meditating, which of, like a lot of your guests have. And it meditating, of course, would have been probably put to better use. Um, dealing with sort of injustice tilt in the later years of my poker career. It's funny that I knew my place in the poker world, but then tried an even more competitive landscape and eventually had to realize that that it was just too hard. I mean, it's fascinating that you made that conclusion, but 
it's hard for me to imagine that all of those books that you read during that time haven't informed your abilities as a podcast host. I mean, hopefully it helps. And of course, it got me thinking about markets generally. And I, I honestly felt like uh, chess podcasts were an inefficient market. And obviously, in the financial world, there aren't a lot of uh, inefficient markets. And I should be clear that, of course, I love Jen's chess podcast and the U.S. Chess Federation has a few podcasts now. So a few more have sprouted up over the years. But at the time, um, there was one other chess podcast called The Full English Breakfast with poker enthusiast Lawrence Trent and Macaulay Peterson and uh, Ginger GM Simon Williams. And by the time I started my podcast, they weren't doing it at that moment. So basically an inefficient market means an undersaturated market? Yeah. Thing? Yeah. Okay. It was like a glaring hole in the chess media landscape as far as I was concerned. Any other undersaturated markets you see right now, Ben? Well, in the chess world, I still think there's room for more chess podcasts. I probably shouldn't say that, but I mean, there's there's other stuff that could be done. I feel like um, chess parents, I get emails from chess parents who, you know, it's such a unique world. So if you're not of a chess background and a lot of kids are getting into chess these days, you try to navigate it. People who are into podcasts are going to look for a chess podcast. And I'm, I'm proud of the work I do, but it's not really entry level, you know? Uh-huh. So like parents could, chess parents could use a podcast, chess kids could use a podcast. Those are my ideas in the chess world, which is what I'm most involved in. Um, I can't think of anything in the poker world off the top of my head, because again, as we've discussed, it's so incredible how many brilliant minds are, are creating content in the poker world. And I can't, you know, the inefficient market in the poker world is that it's not allowed online in, you know, 45 states. Well, I think one of the reasons that it's unlikely for the poker media market to be um, undersaturated and it's going to be really hard to find those holes is because you don't necessarily have to make direct money in poker content for it yeah. to be valuable yeah. because there's so much um, indirect money in the background right. where people are interested in being on it because they have stuff to promote or there are sponsors that are interested in being attached, yeah, even like peripherally. Whereas like a lot of other things, you know, if you're not getting like X number of Patreon subscribers, it's right. like you might stop it in a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. We should say my podcast, I'm very, very, very fortunate. Shout out to all my Patreon subscribers because um, it's a community supported podcast. And without them, I started it, you know, digging into my own pocket and saying, who knows where this was going to go. But there's no way I would be able to put in as many hours as I do without um, the the chess community support. Exactly. So, and I'm, uh, of course, me, I'm a patron. Do I I call it Patreon or Patron? I think it's Patron, um, not drinking Patron as far as I know. And I think it's really important to obviously support the content that you're consuming. So unless, you know, you're really, it's really impossible for you to afford it. If you're listening to a podcast that does have a Patreon, I mean, you should sign up, right? I don't want to sound like I'm shilling specifically for my podcast, but it's definitely, it's flipped my perspective overall that even just a dollar or two a month, generally, if you have a reasonably popular content thing, if it's supported at a small scale by lots of people, that tends to be plenty. It's more just if you're in like a niche thing like chess and there's not necessarily consistent advertising revenue pouring in, you can have a wide audience, but not necessarily um, an obvious way to monetize it other than in my case, I'm Again, extremely lucky that the Perpetual Chess audience is quite generous. Yeah, absolutely. I do have a couple questions from the audience. Randy Temple asks about adult improving for poker. Oh, what up, Rand? Oh, this is uh, one of my oldest friends. Um, Adult improving for poker? I mean, it's a golden age, similar to chess. It's incredible. I mean, I subscribed. When I moved back to New Jersey, I briefly felt like, okay, I'm going to really like, I'm going to play poker one night a week and treat it professionally. So I subscribed to Run It Once. You know, Poker Stars has some stuff on their Poker Stars school. If I were studying poker, I, I love the solver breakdowns because, again, I, I've never even used a solver. But to me, like, nothing would be more compelling than just, like, a, an elite or you're not even elite, but just a, a winning, you know, medium to high stakes pro just walking through how you use the solver on specific hands. A lot of that content is even free. Yeah. So yeah, there's there's really lots but, of good stuff out there. But then again, when I play live, it's like I was watching these Tom Chambers videos on Run at Once for like uh, PLO theory. And, you know, I felt like I was learning from it. But <laughs> what what was going on in those videos and what was going on at the Parks Casino were very different experiences, I will say. Not a lot of overlap. <laughs> because I mean, okay, the pros are pretty decent, but they're just exploiting the bad players. Um, I mean, I guess like this high level study, even in, you know, mid to high stakes uh, Pot Limit Omaha games, it might help you against the other pros. But I mean, I've heard people like Andrew Brokos say like, you need to know the fundamentals so you know when to deviate. 
But I still think in this day and age in live poker, you mainly need to know when to deviate. You mainly need to know um, Garrett Edelstein. I watched one of his videos. He has one on tells that's really good um, where he says like, you know, he just and not to be too crass, but there's certain people who are going to lose the money. And are you going to be the one that gets it? Uh, this is more cash games than tournaments. But I mean, such is the world that you live in if you play poker. Too good, I heard, because I think he, he got blowback because the videos were so good and he stopped making them. <laughs> yeah, he, did, he didn't last long, but they, they hold up well. That's fascinating. I should go back and watch that. Um, but yeah, and then there's this thing actually, Ben, you'd probably like, because it reminds me of like Banter Blitz, this thing that Saul for Why they created where everybody's wearing noise-canceling headphones. Okay. And they just talk about what they're thinking during the hand. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've seen bits and pieces of that. Yeah, that could be fun. It's also similar to the Pro Chess League, where they had everybody wearing noise-canceling headphones so everybody could just, like, babble about what they thought about the positions in the background. Yeah, it's fun to get different people's perspective and see how, like, two professionals in whether it be poker or chess could be thinking about totally different things at the same moment. Well, this has been such a, a wonderful interview, Ben. I mean... It's kind of uh, amazing that you're so involved in both chess content and also in chess. You're a dad of two and you still have time to kind of at least keep like one toe in the poker world. You described it as 10%. So one toe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's about right. Definitely one toe. Yeah. And no aspirations of, of it being greater, but poker will always have a special place in my heart. And, you know, for any for any poker players who are interested in checking out the chess world, check out my podcast. Some are more accessible than others, but I don't know. Me personally, I like diving into niche things, even if it's not my niche. So check it out and see what you think of our little world. Yeah, absolutely. And and speaking of accessible, I'd say one of the number one accessible episodes would maybe be that recent one you had with Jonathan Rousen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's inaccessible, but in a different way, just because he's so brilliant. But yeah, he's uh, he recently wrote a book called The Moves That Matter, where he's trying to um, place chess in the context of his life as a former chess professional, um, gone straight. He's also trying to place it in the context of what I was mentioning earlier about chess being such a timeless game and where it exists in the world. Um, I've also had him on Hamilton. I've noticed a lot of the poker players like the chess bras. I think his interview was pretty accessible. I mean, those guys, the chess bras are amazing presenters and they, they have a way of making their genius a little more understandable than some others and more fun as well. Love it. Absolutely love it. Well, it's at perpetualchesspod.com. That's where you can find all the links to your Twitter, which is at Beneficial One. And then how do we find you on Patreon? It's linked on the Perpetual Chess website. And I always put it in the episode description. So if you're enjoying the show, you're welcome to support it. But more, I'm, I'm more interested in just checking it out and seeing if you enjoy it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want anyone to contribute if they're not actually listening. <laughs> wow. Those are some kind words there. Some generous <laughs> words. Yeah. Well, I, I might mean it. I might not. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much for Pocket Sevens throwing us all the way back to 2006 EPT. Um, some of my listeners were probably in like elementary school yeah, at that point. Sure. So. Thanks, Jen. It's been a fun stroll down memory lane. Thank you so much for listening to The Poker Grid. Go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast network. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. We also really appreciate your reviews and ratings. They really do help. We also have a new mailing list, so go ahead and subscribe to that on thepokergrid.com slash subscribe. Finally, if you're looking for a way to support me and my projects, I'm the Women's Program Director at US Chess, and we're trying to equalize the field in the mind sports arena. You can go to uschess.org and pick a donation of any size. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to The Poker Grid as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve, yeah I got talent. You won't see.